live and commercial free. Hello, this is Brian Adams on your favorite radio station. This is Glory Days Radio with Paul Underwood on KBWD Brownwood. You know what? I wanted it, and I got it. I wanted to get out of town, and Mr. John Lamoureux obliged. He invited me to Denver, Colorado to see a little Brian Adams, and we went to a historic concert venue last night, Red Rocks, and we saw Brian Adams. No opening act, just the great Brian Adams. It was 36 years, John Lamoureux, from the last time I saw him. And he looked great. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. And thanks for being in Denver. I love Brian Adams and I love Red Rocks. And I was so glad that I got to be the guy that took you to Red Rocks for the first time. You know, I'd mentioned that I'd been to another, what they say is a great venue, is the Gorge Amphitheater there in Washington State. And it didn't hold a candle no. to Red Rocks. I mean, no. it was amazing. I posted a video you can see on the Glory Days Radio Facebook of a little summer of '69. And I think I actually panned, and Did you could see the you could see those rocks yeah. lit up. We were just right in this rock canyon. We'll do a quick review of the Brian Adams show, and then we're going to get into our top producers of all time, rock and roll music producers. Brian Adams show. Give me your concert review, John Lamoureux. Yeah, I thought it was kind of amazing. He's one of those artists, as I'm watching him, I think he's been sort of forgotten in a lot of ways. His The peak of his popularity is a good 25 years in the rearview window. Right. And he's even gone in some directions that you wonder kind of what he's doing, what he's thinking. He had that greaser period, you yeah. know. <laughs> In the early 90s, he got really into fashion and androgyny and all this kind of stuff. And, uh -huh. um, it just kind of, it seemed so incongruous with the le black leather clad rocker he had been before. Yeah. But I thought this was just about the most, as perfect a concert as you could ask for from an artist like him. He played all the hits you would want, pretty much. Right. Um, my only small criticism is I get really... I'm really big on the order of the set list. You yes. know, building to a crescendo and then a release. And uh, there were a few songs that I might have moved around yeah. just for greater impact. And you talked about the song, Run To You. Mm. Kicked it off with a song I don't think either of us knew, but it was a peppy, mm -hmm. you know, upbeat song that mm -hmm. we liked. And then the second one was Can't Stop This Thing We Started, yeah. which is also a really peppy, upbeat song. Yeah. And then he goes straight into Run To You, which is a great, one of his best tunes, but it's a little darker, a yeah. little, little gloomier. Mm -hmm. And so I, coming off the heels of these two upbeat things, it weakened the impact that I thought that song could have had otherwise. Yeah. You know, save it to 
you know, give it a give it its shining moment later in the show. Right. I mentioned I saw Brian Adams actually open up for Foreigner in Taylor County Coliseum in Abilene, Texas. I found my ticket stub. I do have a picture of really? it. February 12th, 1982. Goodness. And it was on the Foreigner 4 tour. And Brian Adams had just really released his first major album. I was disappointed that he did not play Lonely Nights mm-hmm. off that first album. Mm-hmm. And then the, the song I opened the show with was kind of, it, it depicted Brian Adams as a punk rocker. Had you ever yeah. heard that song? You want it, um, you got it? Vaguely, kind of in the back. Right. I, I haven't ever fully gone into those first couple of albums. Played two or three numbers mm-hmm. off of Cuts Like a Knife mm-hmm. and probably the same amount off, off of Reckless. And those are really probably considered his, that's, yeah. that was his high point right there. Right. And uh, and he touched on songs from his last few albums that are less known, but are also really good. They're yeah. solid. Yeah. I really, yeah, I enjoyed it. And I just thought it's, you know, we've taken a guy like him for granted for a long time. And you forget how much he means to you. Yeah. You know, you grew up on these songs. At least I did anyway. Yeah. And, um, I've seen him twice before. Once was when Reckless first came out. And then the other time was around, I want to say, 99, 2000. I grew up in Salt Lake City and he was the surprise opener for the Rolling Stones. It wasn't that great. And it was at the height of this like greaser period of his where he just looked kind of dirty and greasy and <laughs> not putting out good stuff. And it was a little bit of a letdown. So he, it was great. You almost feel like during that time, he just, he, I don't know, he, he got some bad advice or I don't know. That's the thing you wonder about these people. Did it, was it the advice? Was it an artist feeling free to fully express themselves? And yeah. if so, is that... If that's him expressing himself, I like the other guy better. Yeah, yeah. Was the other guy compromised? Who's the real artist here? I want to, you know, I want to connect to that person. Now, I think that was the first rock show I'd been to where all the guys come out in matching uh, sport uh, jackets mm-hmm. and, you know, the jeans. And I'd never seen that before. Were you a little surprised at the look of the show? Um, no, I guess not because it's in keeping with kind of what he... It's mixing the fashion mm-hmm. angle that he seems to be really into now that he's a professional photographer too, we should say. Yeah, yeah. Um, very well known, in fact. But there was a, you know, they were wearing black jeans. Yeah. And so there was enough of like a rock element. When I saw them open for the Stones, there were only three of them and they were in all white and he had his longer stringy hair kind of down in his eyes. It, it just looked more like they needed to do their laundry. I'm a first real six string Bought it at the five and done Played it till my fingers bled Was a summer of 69 Me and some guys from school Had a band and we tried real hard Jimmy quit, Jody got married Should've known we'd never get far Now talk about the relationship with his guitar player and to me that was so cool that the, those guys had have, have uh, spent that much time together Keith Scott has been his guitarist as far as I know back to the very beginning yeah so he was there when I saw him in 82 mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. yeah yeah and um, he is such an underrated I mean some of the you know we've I've talked before on here about the pixie dust or the magic mm-hmm. you know moments in these songs his guitar is, I think, in a lot of ways, what elevates these Brian Adams songs. Yeah. Into just and it's not standard. amazing that these two guys, because a lot of bands stick together, but to toil in that anonymity for mm-hmm. as long as he has, you yeah. know, it's, it's Brian Adams, you right. know. It's not 
Brian and yeah. Keith, you know. So. I agree. But didn't you think, I thought Brian did a great job of pointing yeah. the praise back mm-hmm. at his bandmates. Show, yeah, you know, showcasing. Especially Keith, yeah. who's been there all along. Yeah. But yeah, Keith is kind of the secret weapon of Brian's career. Mm-hmm. And Brian seems to know that. And uh, maybe Keith is just happy kind of being more in the background. Yeah. You know? Summer of 69, obviously a highlight. That song got a little racy on the video screen. I actually had to edit my video. It was great, though, because it had a beautiful naked woman up uh-huh. there with the words of the song kind of scrawled on, yeah. her, on her naked body. Right. That was really the only racy part. And because he's so into photography, it's more artistic than it is, you yeah. know, scintillating or whatever. Only other disappointment, I love the song Take Me Back. Mm. And I just thought that would be a song that Brian Adams would never take out of his set, you know, but I I guess I'm just an old guy. In fact, looking around, I might have been the guy who had seen Brian Adams, you know, the longest. You had mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, first of all, speaking of songs he didn't play, I really love Heat of the Night, which Mm -hmm. was the first track off Into the Fire, which was the follow up to Reckless, which he didn't play anything off that album. He kind of forgets that even exists. I yeah. like that album and I like that song a lot. But you had mentioned um, kind of the lack of diversity at that show last night. It was a lot of white people, you know, 40 years old or older. Yes. And Brian was great. Every now and then he would pick out children who were in the audience and bring them up and give them a guitar pick and mm-hmm. stuff like that. He mm-hmm. was just a very, he was a pro. You can tell when you go to a concert where the the performer is an absolute pro. Yeah. Knows how to do what they do best, knows how to work the crowd, knows how to please people, isn't precious or pretentious about anything. And he was never like that, you know? And he sounded great. There's exactly so there's the so same. many of these classic artists that you go and it's almost sad, you know? Yeah. But gosh, the guy takes great care of himself and, uh, you know, it made it worthwhile. It didn't sound to me like he'd lost anything, mm-hmm. really. Me neither. Let's move off of Brian Adams, and let's get to our topic of the day. You know, you'll remember John Lamoureux. John actually came to Bramwood. You know, I gave him a concert in Bramwood. I gave him Coffe Anderson. Almost as good as Brian Adams. Well, <laughs> we, we, love, we love our Coffe. We, yeah. we, we really do. And then he was able to oblige, and I was able to turn in some airline miles and get to Denver to see Brian Adams. And I told him I couldn't tell if I was more excited about the concert or getting to do this podcast mm-hmm. with him because John hosts his own podcast like we talked about on a previous episode called The Hustle. If you've never got into podcasting and, and listening to podcasts, this is the great one to start with. Look up The Hustle podcast. John finds these obscure and sometimes not as obscure artists that maybe have been forgotten about, kind of fallen through the cracks and John interviews them and, and just helps us catch up. And we find all of these artists have great stories to tell. I feel like we hear the stories of the big bands kind of over and over again. But other, other people have great stories too. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if that rush you feel when you hear a song that you love that you haven't heard in so long and you kind of forgot about? Wishing Well by Terrence Trent Darby. Yes. You know, you've forgotten yes. about that, but you had that was one of your uh, yeah. last guests you had on. Yeah, he was a trip. Oh my gosh. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily start with my Terrence Trent Darby no, interview no. if you decide to come to my show, but... Um, but yeah, you know, you press play and you hear a song. I remember this song, you know, I haven't heard this forever. Well, yeah. this is the story of the guy who mm-hmm. sang or wrote or played on that song, you know, and what has he been doing? How does he pay his bills today? The absolute best music podcast on the internet, well, in my humble thank opinion. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now let's get to the subject because I get another chance here to pick John Lamoureux's brain and... 
we're tackling the subject of the producers. Mm-hmm. Even the first thing that happened whenever I started this topic was realizing that I probably bit off more than I could <laughs> chew. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of them. Yeah. And to be able to pick our top five, and that's what we're going to do. We may throw in a couple of honorable mentions here mm-hmm. too, but it proved to be a pretty difficult exercise. It did. Originally, you had mentioned top 10, mm-hmm. and that was difficult to narrow down. Yeah. The, t- the ones that I'm going to mention today, I feel very strongly about. I think I'm comfortable with these. I, have, uh, I had several rules that I applied to my rationale for creating this list. Yeah. And I'm curious if you did too. We've been hanging out for two days now, but we haven't talked about uh, how we, we came up with our list. Yeah, we've consciously avoided the yes. subject till now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, um, you know, I, there were all these hoops that these people had to jump through in order to make my list. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'll tell you what they are, but I want to hear yours first since okay. you came up with this topic. All right. Well, why don't we just start with a, a simple question. What is a producer? Because you think about, you know, you know what a movie producer does, but a music producer is more like a movie director, I think. Very true. Than, so, Perfectly said. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I don't know if you saw this while you were kind of researching some of the people you had in mind. Some of them are engineers. Some of them do the mixing. Some, mm-hmm. of, you know, and what do those things mean? And is the magic of the song that you love, the mixing or the production or the engineering or the remixing or right. you know the sound? What is it? You know, so it's difficult to really narrow narrow this stuff down. One of the rules that I applied for myself on this is that I wanted to pick producers where their personality what I believe their personality to be is what made those songs special. Oh, you know? okay. yeah. So for instance, I'll give you an idea. Um, it wasn't going to work for me to just pick my, one of my favorite albums of all time, look at who produced it and say, well then naturally he's one of my favorite producers. Yeah. It had to me, it had to be that he had a focus or a vision um, that he brought to these artists and that's what made the stuff special. Uh-huh. So it's almost as if they are the, they're the artist wow. uh, yeah. in this situation. Yeah. Here's a definition for the producer here. A project manager for the recording, mixing, and mastering process. They inspire, assist, and sometimes even provoke the artist. Seven types of producers. In actuality, some of the names that we're going to name may fall into more than one right. of these categories. You've got the engineer, like you talked about. That's kind of the most stereotypical, classic imagination that we have of a producer, you know. Someone that's obsessing about the compression, you know, or, or the settings, or you've got to get the reverb just right, or the mm-hmm. drums you know, wired just right. The engineer... And then you've got the mentor, mm-hmm. and uh, they may just be there as kind of a an overall guide and kind of a sounding board kind right. of deal. Their focus is more on, well, what is your intent? You know, let's re- really hone in on that. Uh, what is your motivation? And then you've got, well, this one's just called the golden ticket, the secret <laughs> formula. Mm-hmm. That's why you go to this guy, because mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're going to get, and you know, the name, um, one of them that's on your list kind of fa- maybe falls into that category. I think a lot of mine probably fall into that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, then one that we're that I'll just throw in here, Dr. Dre is another mm-hmm. one, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you know what you're going to get if you go to Dr. Dre, right. you know. Uh, the remixer, and that's another part of it. You know, it's now become 
more the remix of a song is even more popular than the actual mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. So you've got people that just they specialize in remixing. Yeah. Um, you know, Grandmaster Flash, you know, all that 70s disco that he mm-hmm. did, you know, he was the remixer on those. Number five, the musician. And this is a guy and and a lot of these producers they get in there and they'll play an instrument even sometimes. Sure. Probably the least recognized, but the most fundamental skill requires a producer to have some sort of musicality. Mm-hmm. Some of them are guilty of throwing their voice in and being background vocal. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them in particular that we'll talk about, mm-hmm. Daniel Lanois. You know, mm-hmm. he actually played some guitar on the Joshua Tree. Yeah. You know, it wasn't all the edge. Yeah. So that would be one that would be classified as a musician. And there's another one on your list that we'll talk about that was uh, mm-hmm. that, that played a lot of instruments on an album. Right. Okay, number six, in these different types of producer, you've got the artist. Some producers take musicality to another level by actually being the artist. And, you know, that would be Prince. Right. You know, how many people have this on their album? Produced, arranged, composed and performed yep. by Prince. And I purposely, that was another rule. I couldn't, I wouldn't allow myself to pick somebody like that. It had to be somebody who was primi- who was the producer first and all those other things second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you've got the Bonkers Visionary. Mm. You think of the name Phil Spector. You think Bonkers because you just picture him with that wild hair right. or whatever there. Right. Um, and uh, one more, the Godlike Genius. Mm. And that's where you bring in someone like a, a George Martin. Uh, Brian Wilson, even Brian Eno, to some respect, might fall under there. Mm-hmm. As we discuss the individual names of our producers, we may fall back on those and kind of see where some of these lay. Let's talk about maybe a few of them that didn't make our list, and maybe we're going to give some honorable mention mm-hmm. to. Do you have any like that that you want to go with, Yeah, John? I have a lot, actually. You mentioned Phil Spector. Now, look, I know you know he's a divisive character now, and he's done a lot of done dumb things. I'm not defending Phil Spector as a person right. at all. Oh yeah. But his wall of sound that he brought to production in the late fifties into the sixties was no question absolutely revolutionary. Yeah. And I talk about a producer where see this is what I mean. Like when you pick up an album and you see who it was produced by, does that entice you to check it out more so even than whoever performed on the album Hmm. and if if that's the case then yeah i want to know what phil Spector did because the guy back then was a mad genius you know so uh he's one um another and these were almost going to be kind of i i can join these in some way some ways is brian eno and tony visconti because bowie is such a big artist for me and they work together on some of my favorite Bowie music. Yeah, John is a uh, CD collector, and mm-hmm. I, I was able to spend a good bit of time with his CDs, and there's a very large Bowie <laughs> section in there. I think you've got just about everything. I do. Everything I'm aware of, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, there, you know, and that, Brian Eno's another one who brings a very specific point of view to what he does, and um, you can almost tell, you listen to me every time I listen to U2's With or Without You, I'll wait for you 
It's such a great song, but when you hear that really high-pitched synth sound, it's just sort of eerily sneaking through. That's a Brian Eno flourish, you know, to me anyway. Yeah. Um, and then uh, one more I wanted to mention, who's way more obscure, is a guy named Don Dixon. And I've always really liked Don because he produced the first two R.E.M. albums. Wow. He produced the first two Guadalcanal Diary albums, who were like R.E.M.'s little brothers in a way. And he produced the first two Smithereens albums. And those are two of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. So um, I didn't quite feel like he had done enough to merit, you know, going higher on my list. But those yeah. are some of my honorable mentions. Okay. And I'll throw out just a couple of mine. Mm. Hugh Padgham. I thought of him too. Um, this guy created what's called the, the gated drum effect, which basically changed the way pop drums were recorded back in the 80s. Yeah. A perfect example is Phil Collins' In the Air Tonight. Yeah. And Hugh Padgham also produced for, oh gosh, a myriad of other artists, uh, including uh, The Police. He did The Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, of course, worked with Genesis did a little work for David Bowie, and I absolutely love the horn sound he got out of the Phoenix horns on Phil's face value on the song I Missed Again. I miss good horns. Listen to this. surprised that Todd Rundgren was not on my list. I was. But a little controversial, I think, because he's had, um, well, he had, are you familiar with the feud that he had with XTC? Oh, sure. I had the guitarist (laughs) for XTC on my show. You did? Yeah. So we talked all about it. Well, tell me about his thoughts on Todd Rundgren and did he change your opinion? Because Andy, is this Andy Partridge? Well, I talked to the guitarist whose name is Dave Gregory. Okay. And Andy Partridge is a very entertaining raconteur who's also a little bit prickly. It was basically just one of those, you know, conflicts of vision. And Todd, who I don't think has a reputation of being a particularly prickly individual, as far as, you know, the tubes work with him and Mm -hmm. New England, that band, you know, I know you love them. And so many people have worked with Todd and seem okay with it. Meatloaf, you know, New York Dolls. Uh, But for whatever reason, he and Andy just could not get on the same page creatively. Yeah. It sort of caused Andy to talk a lot of trash. That's, you know, a big narrative to Andy and XTC story is this he ruined Skylarking, which happened to be also be their breakout album. Yeah. Dave had no problem with Todd. Dave liked Todd a lot and yeah. thought Andy was kind of overreacting on a lot of this. Well, Todd thought he had support from about 60% of the band. And yeah, Andy said he never trusted him. And I think it kind of all culminated on that song, Dear God. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was the song that Todd had pegged for the, you know, that's going to be a hit. Yeah. And then at the uh, 11th hour, you know, Andy gets cold feet and said, mm-hmm. let's pull, I don't want this thorny subject. Right. Let's pull the song from the album. Yep. And they did. Yep. And it happened to be the B-side of what became the first single, a song called Grass. 
And as we've talked about, the DJs flip it over. They like Dear God a lot better. Yeah. It becomes a giant hit and they have to reproduce, uh, reprint all these albums with now uh, Dear God tacked on to the album. So you can buy a version of Skylarking without Dear God on it, which is their biggest hit. Yeah. Uh, Todd Rundgren, you know, responsible for, you mentioned Bad Out of Hell, Grand Funk Railroads, yeah. American Band. He did a Bad Religion album, the Couple of Tubes albums, mm-hmm. and my all-time favorite band, Cheap Trick, mm-hmm. Next Position, Please. Mm-hmm. But even even that, you hear Rick Nielsen talk about Todd, and Rick kind of poopaws, you know, a oh, lot does of what he? Todd did. He said, yeah. well, you just kind of, he started the tape tape machine up, and he realized that, oh, you're, we're listening to the record here, you know, <laughs> kind of deal. So that's it's just hearing that and kind of the deal with XTC made me leave Todd Rundgren off of my list. But I love Todd Rundgren. I love the fact that he even legitimized one of my guilty pleasures, Robin, the Swedish, oh, the sure. Swedish singer. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, he put Robin on his last record. Oh, know? really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Maybe a good way to do this would be we'll just each start with our number five and we'll just okay. volley these back and forth until we get to our number one, what we deem to be our, our favorite okay. music producer. All right. Uh, number five, John Lamoureux. Who okay. do you have? Um, so I picked for number five, Quincy Jones. And um, let me explain here. One thing I've found with almost all of these producers, and maybe you did too, they all seem to have a sort of sweet spot there was a period where they were at their very best, a peak, and they didn't necessarily maintain that forever and ever. Now, Quincy goes back 60 years. I mean, you'd be shocked to know how much he's done, most of it being in jazz, you know, in the early days. But in in the mid to late 70s, he started to produce people like George Benson, uh, the Brothers Johnson, who to me are the second best R&B group of all time behind Earth, Wind & Fire. Wow. And of course, uh, Michael Jackson. And what I felt he brought to those albums at that time was this sort of like orchestrated funk. It was sort of a more sophisticated version of like disco or something. He put out an album of his own called The Dude, which featured James Ingram, who went on to start him. But this was like... Quincy sort of breaking out James Ingram into the mainstream. I just think his late 70s to, I didn't care for Bad, Michael Jackson's Bad is a great album, but it doesn't sound like a Quincy Jones album to me. Yeah. So it's really from like the mid to late 70s through probably Thriller, you know, Yeah. Um, that is Quincy's sweet spot. Let's talk about Thriller here for a minute. I've got a quote here from Quincy I'm going to play for you. And, you know, the question was asked him, how did you know that Thriller would be such a hit? Intuitiveness. Anybody that says they know they're going to sell 104 million albums or whatever it was, are lying. You, you don't do that. You make something that you love, man, and makes you get goosebumps. That's what I do. I want to get something I love, you know. And if I get some, we went to 800 songs to do Thriller. Get nine songs. And then 
at the end of the road, what we do is once I get those nine songs on their feet, I give a very honest moment with myself and say, okay, in the nine songs, relatively, what are the four weakest? It's a hard decision, but you have to really be real. And musically, you know, you know. And you take those four out, and for a lot of them were hits, you know. One was Mike Cimbello had Carousel in there, mm -hmm. which we substituted with a, a Human Nature. And we added Lady in My Life, wrote PYT, and added Beat It, and uh, Human Nature. And that together with, with Billie Jean, and don't start in something until it's over, you know, because you got the, you got that magic, you know. Imagine, yeah, yeah. We just added "Beat It," you know, at the last minute. You know, Isn't that it was, crazy? Yeah, eight hundred songs to get nine. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was studying up a little bit on him. You know, he said uh, in his growing up, he was, you know, he was going to be a gangster. And really? He and his, I think it, I don't know whether it was his brother or his friend, had broken into uh, an armory. And Quincy walks into this room and he sees a piano sitting there. He walks up, he touches it, and it touches him back. That opened up his world wow. almost. Really? Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Isn't that odd? Yeah. Now you talk about thriller. I think I feel kind of strange because I've been on your show twice and both times I've talked about Michael Jackson. <laughs> and I don't actually talk about Michael Jackson that much in my normal life. Right. So it seems like this guy has a fixation. I don't. But um most I think people will tell you that Michael Jackson's off the wall album, which came out in seventy nine, preceded thriller, is the better of the of those those two albums. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm not going to play a, a song off off the wall. I want to play the Brothers Johnson, okay. and I want to play a song called "Stomp." The Brothers Johnson are the greatest at what they do. It is so funky and so great, and Quincy's magic pixie dust is all over this song. And my kids and I love to dance to this song. get to my number five here i went with roy thomas mm. baker mm -hmm. weird looking dude you know <laughs> got the long blonde hair wears those little round glasses he almost looks like edgar winter like he could have slight albinism yeah a little you know bit what I mean? yeah he projects the persona of patience mm. when you think of what roy thomas baker did and i say that from his being patient with queen with freddie mm. mercury's vision Mm -hmm. Queen's got this great movie coming out, I think, in November, mm -hmm. December. I'm excited to see. And I think there's th this part is included in the movie where Freddie is explaining his vision to Roy Thomas Baker on Bohemian Rhapsody. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? 
Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. And so Freddie's at the piano and he's playing it. Then he looks at Roy and he says, and this is where the opera comes in. (laughs) And they both just burst out laughing. But Roy Thomas Baker was the perfect producer with that because in his work with Decca Records way back when, he actually worked with an opera company. And that's where he learned a lot about vocals Hmm. and the way that vocals are stressed. So Roy Thomas Baker was one of the few people in the world who knew where Freddie was coming from. If you had to produce that nowadays, think about how much easier it would be to produce that than it would be back in 1975. Yeah. He would say that every time Freddie would come up with another Galileo, you know, he did that. (laughs) He says he would just simply add another tape to the reel. It took three weeks to record that small little opera part to that song. In 1975, that's a whole album. Totally. So you look at Roy Thomas Baker and the patience that he had with Queen. If there's a criticism that you could have of Roy Thomas Baker, it could be overproduction. Some people might say that about that Queen album. Mm. So what did he do to kind of, I guess, balance out his resume? Well, he went to work for the cars. Yeah. And you look at, now he's the great minimalist, you exactly. know. Exactly. angel, always upset. Keeps on forgetting we ever met. Can I bring you out in the light? My curiosity's got me tonight. And how could I leave off a guy that, you know, he wrote the soundtrack for my growing up. You're looking at not only Queen, but Journey. He did work with Lindsey Buckingham, mm-hmm. A 10,000 Maniacs, Foreigner, Cheap Trick, and yeah. your favorite, Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> my very favorite. <laughs> so Roy Thomas Baker is number five on my list. Great. Now, having just passionately explained my criteria for coming up with my list, this is the one addition to my list where I sort of break that rule. Okay. Because my number four pick is a guy named Chris Hughes. By the way, listeners will notice uh, our ages with our lists, what generation we grew up in. A little bit. Yeah. I yeah. think there's a... I'm 53, you're 40. I'm 45. Okay. I'll be 45 in a couple weeks. So mm-hmm. 
definitely more a child of the 80s. So Chris Hughes, I would say, does not fit the category of a producer who brings his own personality necessarily to what he's working on, but he had worked on so many things that mean a lot to me, it was there was no way I couldn't include him. Right. Some of the highlights to me are, well, first and foremost, he was the drummer of Adam and the Ants. They had such a unique Burundi style drumming. Uh-huh. That was Malcolm McLaren who had managed the Sex Pistols. That was his idea. Right. And um, so that alone right there, him being that drummer is kind of a cool thing. But then he went on to produce those albums. Yeah. Uh, and produce a lot of, and Adam Ant's solo album Friend or Foe as well. Chris Hughes, he went on to produce one of my very favorite albums of all time, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair. Mine too. Uh, he also did The Hurting, which the album that came out before that, also a great album. He worked with Wang Chung. He worked with the Polecats. He worked with Rick Ocasek, Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Now, one of my favorite albums ever, and it's divisive, is a group called Red Box. Okay. I would just encourage anyone who's interested to go look for a group called Red Box. almost like alternative world music. It is very strange. It's a masterpiece of ideas and creativity coming together to create this really interesting music that's also very, you know, melodic and pretty and uplifting. And he worked on that. So anyway, little shout out to Redbox. All right. I didn't even label mine as far as numbers because I had a hard time going one through five. So I'm just going to pick another guy off my list. And uh, let's just go with, Oh my, his last name is Martin. It's got to be Max, Max, Martin. Max Martin, of course. <laughs> now my audience is going, no, what about Wait, what? George Martin? George Martin. Yeah. yeah, George Martin. And like I talked about in the godlike genius, you know, George, he's up there in the, the stratosphere. Absolutely. You know? If you didn't have a George Martin, how many of these other guys would we not have? Absolutely. I want to talk about Max Martin. And am I a fan of everything Max Martin has done? No. And mm. is he a part of many of my guilty pleasures? Sure. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul McCartney and John Lennon are one and two on having written the most number one songs of all time. Who's number three? Max Martin. Max Martin would be That doesn't surprise three. me, actually. Yeah. I mean, he's the mad scientist of the last... 20 years of pop music. Yeah. Almost every major benchmark pop hit that you can name, 
that's pop, that has that pop sheen, the Katy Perry's, the Britney Spears, stuff like that, NSYNC's. He's the mad scientist who created all these things in his lab. You have to name someone like him, I think, if you like that kind of thing, you yeah. know? And the other trivia question that goes along with that, George Martin has produced the mm. most number one singles of all time. Mm-hmm. Max Martin produced the second most That's singles crazy. of all time. Wow. Pink is really one of my favorite artists that he has worked with, and this is what Pink has to say and what makes Max Martin so great. When I think what he is good at is, is holding me back, actually, because I tend to oversing, um, and I tend to take everything to church. And the louder I scream, the better it feels in life, singing or not. <laughs> so I think what he's great at is stop, take a deep breath, simplify. A great chef says the most important ingredient is the thing you leave out. And I think that's also great for producing. That, that's what he brings is he, he sort of takes all of you and then goes, these parts are fantastic, let's work with this. How do you create? Creating is a miracle and he is one of the best creators I've ever met. He just, he just hears stuff. It makes you angry. Because we could listen to a track and I'll hear something and I automatically can't stand it but I hear it, like that's what I hear. And then he comes out with something and you're like, why can't I hear that? I wanna hear that first. Why can't that be the first thing I hear? You're a dick. (laughs) It's kinda like that. This is the Swedish invasion, really, that changed pop music in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Max Martin is over there at the company called Sharon. Mm-hmm. And you also had Dennis Pop, was kind of a predecessor of Max. Dennis Pop passed away very prematurely, mm-hmm. and Max basically took over. If you wanted to hit, you were going to go to Max Martin. Right. Whether you're Britney Spears, whether you're the Backstreet Boys, they would fly them over to Sharon there, and they would wow. work with the great Max Martin. Our very own Brian Adams did some work yep. with Max Martin. I love those Kelly Clarkson. My mm-hmm. life would suck without you. Right. Uh, since you've been gone, you the know, best. you go back and listen mm-hmm. to Since You've Been Gone, and how can you not like that song? It's one of the greatest singles of all time. So moving on to your number three producer, John Lamoureux. Who are you going with? Yeah, I'm going to go with Nile Rodgers. Oh, 
I mean, as most people know, he comes up in chic with good times and Le Freak and stuff like that. He writes We Are Family for uh, Sister Sledge. But then he goes into his own production career. He did Diana Ross's Upside Down, you know, such a great song. That album is great. Um, I'm Coming Out. But then he goes to work with people like, he basically becomes the sixth member of Duran Duran. And I don't know how big of a Duran Duran fan you are, but if you listen to their Seven and the Ragged Tiger album, Mm -hmm. the reflex is on that album. And the album version is just okay. Yeah. The single version that they asked him to kind of pump up for them that we all know and love, he did that. That is my favorite Duran Duran song. Yes. Yeah. If you want to see what makes Nile Rodgers special, listen to the difference between the album version of The Reflex and the single version of The Reflex. One of his crowning achievements is that he produced David Bowie's Let's Dance album. Um, now, you know, not everyone thinks that this is David Bowie at his peak, but it is at him at his commercial peak. He charged Nile Rodgers with getting him there. Nile tells a story. They went off to like some cabin wherever they were going to for three weeks to work on the album. Yeah. And Nile tells a story of David standing in the doorway of his room with an acoustic guitar, basically playing these two chords. Dean, <laughs> Dean. And he says, I think that can be a hit. That's all Niall has to work with. Ding, ding, you know. I, I, I'm glad you're, t- I, if you weren't going to tell this story, I was. Oh, I you've heard this story? I lo- I, I've heard this story, and yeah. the other thing I'll add to it, and I'll let you go, is Niall said, what do you what do you want to call that? And Bowie said, I was thinking, let's dance. <laughs> yes. Ding, ding. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and so this whole masterpiece of a song gets built from the ding, ding that Bowie played in the doorway of Niall's room. Produces Original Sin by NXS. He works closely with Madonna and Like a Virgin. He does some Thompson Twins work, uh, Mick Jagger. And then he also, now here's another divisive one. He produced the B-52's comeback album, Cosmic Thing. Yeah. Which everyone probably knows because it's got Love Shack on it. And that's one of those songs that was popular that no one can stand anymore. Right. But there is an, there are other great songs on there, especially one called Channel Z. I am living on channel Nile has a signature guitar sound yeah this like plucky staccato sound on his guitar he talks about his like two billion dollar guitar oh yeah and everything is on that and the guitar strumming on uh, channel z by b52s is a great example of what 
Nile does on this guitar that's just magical. He was asked, was there ever a project that didn't work? And he mentions his work with Blondie. Oh. And it all had to do with timing. Huh. Blondie, fresh off of her hit Rapture, you mm-hmm. know, which almost sounds like it could have been done by Nile Rodgers. Right, know? it does. And Nile Rodgers, fresh off of Good Times with mm-hmm. Chic. Mm-hmm. And so he starts off working with Blondie. But then... Chicago's Comiskey Park, July 12, 1979, between games of a doubleheader with the White Sox and the Tigers. I think you got in free if you brought a disco record. Right. They carted this thing off into center field. All the fans were invited to throw their disco records into this mm-hmm. thing, and they blew it up. Right. Center field Comiskey yep. Park. Yep. Huge media deal. And all of a sudden, it all changes. Yeah. For now. And, and people in the media comes after him. How can you do these hedonistic songs when all these financial crises mm-hmm. were going on? So it was more of a timing issue. He said, when I got in the studio with Blondie, all of a sudden we started fighting mm. what we what we were trying to achieve because we didn't want to be seen as a disco, right. you know, because disco was dead. Right. You know. That makes sense. A lot of people will tell you that New Wave, the early New Wave, is really just disco under another name. It's an evolution. <laughs> because you, the disco after that moment had become such a bad word, but there was still music kind of in the pipeline and coming out that was uh, influenced or would have fallen under that category. We need a new name for it. Otherwise, this stuff is going to get crucified out there. Yeah. And that's where the term new wave comes from. Interesting. Glory Days Radio is brought to you commercial free. Thanks to Coldwell Banker, Daniel Container, Texas Bank and Landmark Life. Now, back to the show. Okay, let's get back to my list here. Number three, I'm going to go Butch Vig. This is the controversial pick. Really? This is where we're going to, I'm going to challenge you on a few things. When you hear the name, you think, oh yeah, he was responsible for that Seattle sound. Mm -hmm. The guy grew up in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. actually. He studied piano for six years, and then he saw Keith Moon and the Who perform on the Smothers Brothers, and he traded in that piano for a $60 drum kit. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um... Butch Vig made indie mainstream. He did. There's yeah. no question that he is a revolutionary producer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let you finish, and then I'll go in with my thoughts on this. His first high-profile production work was in 1991. He worked with two bands, Smashing Pumpkins and their album Gish. And I know you're not a fan no. of Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. And... Nirvana's Nevermind. Right. He tells a great story about uh, going in studio with Kurt Cobain and, and meeting those guys and recording that album and then taking it back to Wisconsin. A couple weeks before we went in and started recording Nevermind, Kurt sent me a cassette boombox tape from the rehearsal. And it had some of the new songs on it, Come As You Are and Teen Spirit. And at the start of it, he said, hey, Butch, we got a new drummer. His name is Dave Grohl. He's the best drummer in the world. And they clicked into Teen Spirit, and it just went completely distorted because of the built-in speakers on the boombox couldn't handle the sound pressure in the room. 
And I remember hearing the song going, wow, I, I love the chord progression and it, it sounds really powerful, but it was hard to tell because it was so distorted. Cut to two weeks later, I walked into a rehearsal place in North Hollywood, met the band, Dave was goofy, and they were excited to be there because you know they had signed a deal with Geffen and they had an advance. So the first time they had some money in their pockets in a long time. And they played Teen Spirit the first time and it absolutely floored me. They were so powerful, so powerful sounding. And they were not slackers. They had practiced every day for six months leading up to going in the studio. They were ready. When we finished Nevermind, I went back to Wisconsin and was getting ready to start another project. And I had a party and Billy Corgan came and a bunch of people came. A lot of other musicians was, were there. And I put Nevermind on a cassette on the boombox on the picnic table while we're grilling bratwurst. And everybody stopped talking and stood around the table and listened to the record all the way through. And it was done, there was silence for a few seconds, and then somebody said, play it again. And so I rewound the cassette and played it again, and the same thing, everyone just stood there and listened to it. And I was sort of embarrassed in a way, um, but I just saw how people were listening to it and how it was affecting them. And again, I had no perspective because we did the record so fast in 16 days, and Gavin said, oh, we love it, but you know, I just thought, okay, cool, they, they, we thought the record turned out good. And then I started getting phone calls from, at the studio, people leaving messages on the answering machine, like people who were working in radio or promotion. I didn't even know who they were. They were like, Butch Vig, we just heard Nevermind. Oh my God. I'm leaving messages like that, that's all I would say and hang up. And, and um, I could just feel this electricity building, you know. It's, uh, it, it, people were responding to it in a way that I'd never seen to something I'd worked on before. Let me tell you my issues with Butch Vig. First of all, I don't have any issues with him. He's great, and uh, I don't care for the Smashing Pumpkins, but those are big albums, and he is likely responsible for that, so I respect him for that. Mm -hmm. He didn't fit my criteria in a couple of ways, because number one, I only saw really three noteworthy, really game-changing line items on his resume, which right. are the first two, those Smashing Pumpkin albums, mm -hmm. never mind, and then Working With Garbage. and. I'm not that big of a garbage fan. Uh, I like garbage fine, but going back to kind of my criteria, this isn't, um, these albums aren't necessarily great because he did them. Maybe they are, maybe they are. But then again, that was another thing was that these these producers needed to have more than like one or two points of reference. Right Now I know I, I kind of broke that a little bit with Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones has four different artists that I would consider a points of reference. Each one of those has two or three great albums that he worked on. Um, but I just didn't think Butch Vig had enough to make him a top five of all time. 
I can take that. Yeah, okay. sure. So you think the whole Seattle, that whole movement would have been, would have still taken place without Butch Vig? Well, what? who else did he produce besides um, Smashing Pumpkins, who were a Chicago band? Right. They were lumped into Seattle because of the single soundtrack. Right. And then Nirvana. And Nirvana didn't even like the production of their of their one album. Yeah, Kurt Cobain did. He kind of criticized it for being mm-hmm. too slick of a production. Right. Um, but, I mean, it, obviously Butch did the right thing. This is what I mean. Like, if you were to take out Nevermind from his resume, is there enough there left over to merit Butch Vig being, you know, in the top five? I don't think so. And I didn't want to – I was purposely trying not to – hang someone's entire career primarily on one great album right. and some other stuff that's pretty good. He did produce two other of my favorite alternative albums. Okay. Uh, you've got Soul Asylums, Let Your Dim Light Shine, love that album. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Eat World has never sounded better than they did on the VIG-produced 2007 Chase This Light. Where are you going, John Lamoureux, with your number two? All right, I'm going with Steve Lillywhite. Steve Lillywhite, to me... Maybe this is why I put Butch Vig into mine, because you're taking all the good ones. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting me pick some of these. Uh, no personal list of mine would be complete without Steve Lillywhite. I don't know a ton about him personally. I don't know, you know, you've been throwing in great anecdotes about people's histories and backstories and stuff like that. I don't have a lot of that. What people probably are most familiar with him for is that he produced the first three U2 albums, Boy, October, and War. And let's be honest, War is the one where U2 became a formidable worldwide act. We were at Red Rocks last night. I know that you had U2 Sunday Bloody Sunday video in the back of your mind the entire time. I had the vision of Bono slinging that Irish flag. and This song is not a rebel song. This song is Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It's It's masterful. Well, Steve is the one who brought that kind of like martial, militaristic, anthemic drumming sound to these bands at the time. You can tell a... Let's take somebody like Marshall Crenshaw, who I love Marshall Crenshaw. And Marshall Crenshaw's first album is one of the greatest pieces of power pop in like rock history. You had Marshall on your show not too I long did, ago. yeah, that was a big one for me. But then his second album comes out and in Marshall's own life, Marshall is a fan of Steve Lillywhite because of shockingly bands like Susie and the Banshees and U2, things yeah. you wouldn't expect him to be into. And that's where Lillywhite got his first break was with that Susie and the Banshees yes. song, Hong Kong Garden. Yeah. Marshall's second album, Field Day, comes out, Steve produces it, 
It's a noticeably drastically different sounding album. It was less successful, but if you want to hear what Steve Lillywhite brings to the table, play Someday Some Way by off Marshall's first album and then listen to his second one and you hear that Marshall drumming coming in so profoundly. He also worked with the Pogues, who are one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, uh, He worked on Rolling Stone's Dirty Work album, which not everyone loves, but One Hit to the Body on that album is a great, great song. He worked with Counting Crows, which I'm trying not to think about, <laughs> because that'll just make me angry. Um, but he did that There She Goes song by The Laws, uh-huh. you know, the one and only great Laws album out there, Where Did The Laws Go? He yeah. produced that one as well. Yeah. I like what Bono had to say. He recalls a time where Steve came to Bono. And Lily White said, look, I know I'm a nice bloke. You know, Lily White's Mm -hmm. from the UK. And I know that you like me. You're not an idiot. And you keep asking me back. (laughs) What is it you like about me? Uh And Bono's one answer was clarity. He gave you two clarity. Wow. Yeah. And Lily White, to his credit, he said, I never really thought I had that because my mind was always in the clouds, racing, racing, racing. But, you know, if you say um, Nile Rogers, the king of groove, maybe uh-huh. Steve Lillywhite is the king of clarity. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that's the word that pops to mind when I hear a Steve Lillywhite album and think this is what I love about this album is clarity. It's more of those, uh, those powerful drums that just make you want to charge up a hill yeah. with William Wallace, you know, and half your face painted. <laughs> He talks about the adversarial relationship sometime between that he had with the band. He describes himself as arrogantly humble. He mm. thinks that's what you have to be to be a producer. And when these producers would come to a head with an artist, what Steve would always ask himself, look, ultimately, who's going to be playing this album to their grandchildren? Mm. Is it going to be me? Or is it going to be the artist? Odds are it's going to be the artist. Right. And here's that pasty Brit himself. <laughs> with what <laughs> with what he considers to be the two different types of producers and which camp he feels like he resides in. I always think there's two sorts of producers. There's the one who does nothing and the one who does everything. You know, I'm never the guy who does everything. I'm not, you know, I'm not a shipbuilder. The, ba- the artist is always the shipbuilder, but my job is to decorate it and steer it safely to port. You know, and as we know, the Titanic was a great ship, but it had a bad captain. So um, so that's how I sort of describe what I do, you know. And also, I hate anyone who says, Steve, I'll do whatever you want. I don't. I hate that. What I love right. is someone saying to me, Steve, I've got 10 ideas, but I don't know how they. And I say, OK, give me the 10. I'm, OK, we'll take that one. I like that. Right. But I don't like this one. But change that chord, maybe. Or then we'll take a bit of this one and join it together with that one. So I, I love, put, you know, I've got this sort of logical mind that look, looks at music as, as a jigsaw puzzle almost. So that more or less reinforces what Bono said about providing that clarity. Mm-hmm. There's definitely that, you know, early 80s into early 90s when Steve was at his very, very best, at least to me in my 
tastes, but I we we got to play in a big country mm. by big country. It's an absolute anthem, and it's one of the greatest songs ever. And it, in case anyone doesn't know, what made them interesting, I'm afraid, ultimately became a little bit of a crutch, and that is this bagpipe sound that was incorporated into their rock. They were from Scotland. You may not know, those are not actually bagpipes. That is a, an effect called the ebo put on their guitar to sound like a bagpipe. And so when you hear this song and you hear this charging goosebump inducing bagpipe sound happening in the background that's actually just an effect put on a guitar but that's what steve that's the magic that steve brought to a band like big country and made them special here's that awesome steve lillywhite guitar bagpipe effect I'm going to throw in another honorable mention, Keith Olsen. Mm. Keith worked with a number of bands, but the story I want to tell involves his work with David Coverdale and Whitesnake. Okay. You want to know how a producer can alter history? Mm. Keith Olsen is brought in to remix Slide It In, the U.S. version. Mm-hmm. If you go and look at that, you've got a U.K. version and a U.S. version. Oh, do you ever go to Steve Hoffman's forum? No, I've heard about this, though. Yeah, yeah. I found, I found a discussion on this, and I really expected them to say how much they preferred the UK, the earlier version, you know, because that would seem like the kind of the trendy thing mm-hmm. to do. But they're all pretty much in agreement that they love what Keith Olsen did to uh, slide it in, that album. So for the follow-up, for whatever reason, they went with another guy. Mm. I think the guy's name was Mike Stone. They went mm-hmm. with Mike Stone to produce. Yeah. And so... White Snake convenes, and Mike Stone takes a listen to David Coverdale. And Stone says early on in the process, you're a terrible singer. You can't sing. <laughs> you know, Coverdale had been going through some problems, some sinus issues at the time. But can you imagine a producer telling somebody that? No. Yeah, you're a terrible Especially singer. Especially not David Coverdale, who absolutely can sing. Yeah. So to Keith Olsen, you never do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you do, the producer takes the blame. Well, let's, let me figure out how we can fix this. You know, Maybe you're not getting the, the, the good sound in your headphones. It's never the artist's fault. So Whitesnake leaves Mike Stone. They go back to Keith Olsen again. And so Keith Olsen says, let's attack your most challenging song first. So for this 1987 Whitesnake album, Coverdale goes into this song. In the still of the night, I hear the wolf, I'll honey, sniffing around your door. In the still of the night. 
the still of the night. Mm-hmm. Olsen gets the headphones sounding great, gets everything in key, makes it to where everything has to be totally perfect for David Coverdale to deliver his vocal. And the other thing he does, he sets up three different kinds of microphones in front of David. And he gets on the speaker and he says, well, we're just kind of practicing here. I'm going to figure out what mic works best. Go ahead and give me your most challenging song now. And that's when he goes into that song. Mm-hmm. Well, in actuality, you know, Keith knows what he's doing. He knows yeah. he knows what microphone he's using. He just wants David to be as loose as mm-hmm. possible. And you can hear that great, oh, man, it just gives you chills listening to, the, to, to him say that. And this is how it alters history, though, because mm-hmm. Coverdale leaves that. They go to celebrate, and he's feeling on cloud nine because he knows he can sing. He's been mm-hmm. proven he can sing, and that's the night that he meets Tawny oh. <laughs> So he takes that confidence that he has, <laughs> and so he alters history, and that's how a producer can alter well, history. Let's be honest. Him meeting Tawny Katane changed all of our lives. Oh, it didn't it, though? <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's just a little aside there. I didn't nice. put Keith on my list, but I did want to share that story because to me that's a great story. Yeah. All right, number two on my list is, and how can I leave this guy off, John? I think every time I play one of his songs on Glory Days Radio, I'll say, and that's a Mutt Lang song, and there's another Mutt Lang song. Mm-hmm. I talked about Roy Thomas Baker being the soundtrack of my 70s. Mutt Lang pretty much takes over for the 80s. Yeah, I could see that. He is the James Cameron, if you will, of mm-hmm. music producers. Mm-hmm. He's a perfectionist. He drives. He pushes talented people to the limits, regardless of their precious egos. And I think that's what Mutt Lang is probably best at. Mm-hmm. He's the king of vocals, probably, I would yeah. say. He doesn't have much use for drummers. Yeah. You know, which makes Def Leppard, you know, the perfect band for him. Absolutely. You're, you know, you're dealing with a one-armed drummer. Right. So Rick Allen's just, he's just happy to, to you know, to yeah. be in Def Leppard. You know, whatever, right. you know, whatever you want to do, Mutt. Right. So it really, that was a perfect marriage right yeah. there. You talk about all the other great artists that Mutt worked with. ACDC, mm-hmm. Back in Black, For Those About to Rock. And, you know, you'll have those purists, maybe on the Steve Hoffman forums, talk about, oh, we like the, you know, the earlier ACDC stuff. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, back in black, for those about to rock, those mm-hmm. are some of the some of the greatest sounding rock records yeah. of all time. Let me ask you about this, because I considered Mutt Lang, too, and talk about, I mean, he fits every criteria I had. Talk about a producer with a personality that he, you know, brings to the people he works with. You can tell a Mutt Lang album when you hear it. Yeah. Um, the Cars, Heartbeat City, almost sounds like they didn't, you know, you listen back to Candio or something like that. It mm-hmm. doesn't sound like music that would lend itself to the bombast of Mutt Lang. And yet you, you know, you put Heartbeat City through the Mutt Lang machine <laughs> and you get, you know, basically Def Leppard on a Cars album. sort of like a machine he just an assembly line he kind of just tweaks he does his mutt laying thing to whatever comes through his he's, laboratory he's the master of multi-tracking he yeah. is um heartbeat city mm-hmm. it 
overwhelms the rest of the car's catalog almost. It does. But it forced me to say, man, I love the car so much. I'm going to go see them live. And I went to mm. see them live. And we talked about some bands that just aren't good live. Well, the Cars is one of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, they certainly couldn't pull that sound. They couldn't pull off those great songs. So I really went to that concert hoping to hear, you know, that great album, Heartbeat City. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you know, you can't produce Was it that not live. the same live? No. Oh, mm. no. No. Mm. Electric. Okay, look, you can call it assembly line, you can call it formulaic, you can call it cookie cutter, I don't care what you call it. Mm. The name of the game is album sales. Mm, yeah. I tried to figure out how many albums Mutt Lang was responsible for selling. I gave up. Let's just keep it to six artists. The Cars, The Boomtown Rats, Brian Adams, Def Leppard, Foreigner, and ACDC. Now, every one of those artists had their biggest selling album with Robert John Mutt Lang behind the mixing console. Hello? You're listening to Glory Days Radio. This is Tom Schultz of the band Boston. With Paul Underwood on Magic 1380. Oh! The best part for me is the way Mutt could produce those background vocals. Mm -hmm. And he would drive his artist crazy. Do it yeah. again. Do it again. Do it again. Yeah. Here is, I've got a little bit of photograph from Def Leppard. Nice. This is vocals only. And one of these harmony parts is none other than Mutt Lang himself. Oh, look what you've done. I gotta have you So that's what you get when you that's get amazing. a when you get a Mutt Lang produced album. That's amazing, and I never knew that he said, "Look what you've done." I didn't know that's what he sang in that. Oh, really? At the beginning of that part. Look what you've done to the rock and roll clown. Yeah, I never knew that. So the South African Mutt Lang is number two on my list. Okay, John Lamoureux. Before we each get to our number one producers, I thought we could take a step back and kind of revisit. A few little topics here. The first one, of course, is when I mentioned how much of a daunting process this became. Right. And that's very evident in the fact that I left Jack Douglas off of my list. Mm. He was number six for me. And how could I leave the guy off that he was responsible for those Aerosmith albums, Get Your Wings, Toys in the Attic. Mm, yeah. Gosh, he did the first Cheap Trick album. Wow. Uh, worked with Patti Smith, John Lennon's Imagine, Double Fantasy. Right. Jack Douglas is certainly worthy of being on one of our lists. So there's an apology, I guess, there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now let's talk about maybe a few that perhaps are overrated. Now, I'd mentioned that one kind of at the beginning in doing some studying, I, I determined that Todd Rundgren maybe possibly could be considered to be overrated. And as I say that word overrated, I'm suddenly struck by the fact that that's probably too strong of a word. Mm. Let me rephrase the question to you, John. Um, 
Are there any producers out there that you feel like maybe get more credit than they deserve? Um, again, I should just say that much like Butch Vig, I don't dislike either of these people. Right. Um, but maybe what they're known for to me is a little less interesting than what, you know, the accolades they receive. The f- most obvious choice to me is Rick Rubin. Um, <laughs> now, Rick, before, you know, he was a really good, actual, actually a really good like hip hop and heavy metal producer at first, you know, with the Beastie Boys and Slayer and stuff like that. And there's some artistry there. And then he becomes known, and he deserves to be, as the guy who recreated Johnny Cash's career by stripping everything away except Johnny, his guitar, and a mic. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real. And thank goodness he did that because it completely revived his career. Then he kind of minds that. It's like M. Night Shyamalan with the, you know, surprise endings. He sort of minds that vein for a long time after that mm-hmm. and never goes back to doing anything kind of interesting or revolutionary or experimental. It, People like Neil Diamond, of all people, come to him and say, I want you to do to me what you did to Johnny Cash. Strip everything away and just me and my guitar. Where's the, like, how hard is that, you know? Um, I feel like I could do that. And I'm probably wrong, you know? I'm, yeah. Um, and you mentioned, uh, when you were listing off the kinds of producers, you mentioned a mentor earlier. Right, right. And that really is, I think that's probably Rick's, He's more of like a spiritual sage at this point. He yeah. kind of swoops in and says, I think you should do this or that. And he's right, you know, so yeah. great. He works with the Dixie Chicks and he works with all kinds of people and, and brings them to success. But that whole like, wow, look at the way that Rick strips everything down. <laughs> you and I could do that, Paul, you know? All right. Very overrated, and Steve Lillywhite actually echoes that in the interview. I heard Steve would he would he would laugh about it, but he said, "Yeah, Rick Rubin, he'll come in, he'll what he'll lay on the couch for a while, listen, tell the band what they need to do, and then he leaves." You yeah, know? So, yeah. It's right. got to be more to it than that. Who else, in your opinion? Well, is, the other one, and I, and I, um, I just noticed you're wearing a Grace Jones. shirt I am. There too. I wore that specifically for you for today. I've been I've been staring at that black booty up in the air the whole time. <laughs> I know. My wife sometimes I have to ask her if it's okay when I wear this out in public. Are we going anywhere or seeing anyone who's going to be offended by the And yes, I did I did say booty, not beauty. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's what it is. She's kind of like a li- a living statue yeah. in some ways. Anyway, the uh, the second one that I want to mention and it pains me to do this a little bit is Jeff Lynne. Yeah. And um, now there's no question ELO albums are masterfully produced. Right. There's no question that what he brought to Tom Petty's uh, Full Moon Fever and the Traveling Wilburys and stuff like that for its time was exactly what was needed. Yeah. He's another one that I think sort of stuck to this template longer than what was necessary. Mm. I can pick out a Jeff Lynne song by the first snap of the <laughs> snare drum, you know? He does have a signature sound. He no does. There's a compression it. on that snare that is there, whether it's 1982 or 1992 or 2002 or whatever. Hey, 
sometimes it works. I love Jeff Lynn. Yeah. I'm not criticizing. I'm right. just saying that he's applying what he does and what has always done to everyone that ever comes through his machine. Mm-hmm. One of the albums that was sort of a that sort of rubbed me the wrong way was uh, George Harrison's last solo album called Brainwashed. Okay. I worked at Tower Records when that came out, and he yeah. died. And every, this new album of his, of the last material he was working on, came out. Well, I've been traveling on a boat and a plane in the car on a bike with a bus on a train Traveling there, traveling here, everywhere, in every gear the price with the spin of a wheel with the roll of the dice ah yeah you pay a fare and if you don't know where you're going any road will take you there and you want something revolutionary and it was produced by jeff and it just sounded so like a jeff lynn album yeah just kind of like numb and soft and vanilla and all the he wanted something impactful and he was not the guy to deliver but they were friends so of course you know George wants to work with a buddy you know at the end of his life so I love Jeff Lynn and I love when he does what he does and it works but sometimes I think he just it's the same old bag of tricks it's your number one you get to do your number one first wow this was the first name that came to mind I love this guy I love everything he's done he's another one though who um had kind of a sweet spot. I don't know that he would continue if he produced today to do the masterful things that he did before, but I'm going to go with Trevor Horn. Welcome! Slave to the rhythm. Better or worse, and uh, I'll explain why I say that in a minute, his fingerprints are all over everything he does in much the same way as Mutt. Um, there are many examples. There's the Buggles, of course, obviously. Video mm-hmm. killed the radio star. Yeah. He went on after the Buggles to join Yes briefly. He produced their album Drama, which I'm not that familiar with, but the one after that is 90125, which yeah. is one of the greatest albums ever. Yeah. ABC's Lexicon of Love, which is one of the greatest albums of all time. That is all Trevor. If you judge a book by the cover, then you judge the look by the lover. I hope you'll soon recover. Me, I go from one extreme to another. And though my friends just might ask me, they say, Martin, maybe one day you'll find true love. That is pure pop perfection. Really, really good. Let's move on and talk about Trevor Horn's rocky relationship with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Trevor signed them to his label, produced them in his studio, 
and basically charged them, understandably, I guess, for every minute spent working on the Welcome to the Pleasure Dome album. They never made a cent off having three number one hits in the UK because <laughs> they were millions of dollars in debt to Trevor Horn because Trevor charged them for every piece of equipment he worked, he used to work on that album. That's amazing. Of course, it has that hit song, Relax. Relax, Two Tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the title track, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, is maybe the greatest masterpiece of production ever. The actual song is like 15 minutes long. Everything that you're hearing was created in a laboratory by one guy in his mind, basically. It's so lush, it's ear candy, like I said, it's amazing. So he did an album for Grace Jones. Grace Jones obviously had been, you know, sort of a disco siren, a lot of hits on the dance charts and stuff like that. She scares me. Yeah, she scares me too a little bit. But she's so good when she, you know, and she's another one who, right or wrong, is a product of how good her producer is. It's not necessarily always her. He was charged to produce a song to add on to her greatest hits album called Slave to the Rhythm. Slave to the Rhythm is a masterpiece. So, some other things that Trevor did that I think are amazing. He worked with the Pet Shop Boys. He worked on with Simple Minds, Paul McCartney, um, Mark Almond, who had been the lead singer of Soft Cell, and lastly, but also another all-time favorite of mine, is Seal. Survive on 
He did the first two Seal albums, Crazy and Future Love Paradise, that's all Trevor. And then on the second album, people got sick of Kiss from a Rose and stuff like that, but uh, that's all Trevor too. In fact, you could argue, and this happens to a lot of people, including Big Country, who I mentioned before, when these artists stop working with the producers who make them special, they become less special. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that's what happened with Seal. I like Seal a lot, and now he's... I like David Foster too, but he's tied his bandwagon to David Foster and singing songs from the American Songbook like Rod Stewart did in the worst, ugliest sellout move of all time. Yeah. So I jump on and off my Seal train of love, but the first Seal album is a masterpiece and that's all Trevor. That gets me to my number one. And maybe because I'm fresh off of reading this guy's autobiography, if you had to pick the first family of producers, mm-hmm. you would have to go with the Johns family, wouldn't you? I think so. We run the gamut from the small faces, the who, to Ryan Adams and Kings of Leon with the Johns family. Crazy. Yeah. You've got Glenn Johns, and Glenn Johns is my pick. This guy is in the studio for the very first Led Zeppelin album, Engineering, while Jimmy Page produces. Produced for Eric Clapton, the Steve Miller Band, Humble Pie, Joe Cocker, Boz Skaggs, The Who. He mixed The Clash's Combat Rock, which we'll get to later. And um, I'm leaving some out. Um, Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones. Eagles, your favorite. (laughs) Yeah, my favorite. For your audience, I just got through doing an entire show on the Eagles. And I do love the Eagles, but little tired of the eagles right now but yeah duh the eagles and the rolling stones thank you for for filling in my blanks there um and then you've got uh, his brother andy who glenn would tell you is a better producer than he was andy passed away about five years ago but he works with humble pie free rod stewart and then cinderella mm. night songs yeah. autograph van halen's for unlawful carnal knowledge album and then you have glenn's son who takes over ethan johns Mm -hmm. and he produces ryan adams kings of leon he does some work with paul mccartney on that album new which i love Mm -hmm. that album album. uh crowded house one of your favorites Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some crosby stills and nash so the first family if you look at the greatest tree of producers it's got to be the johns tree now glenn himself he could be known as a pretty prickly character oh really oh yeah he wouldn't mind telling it like it is Mm. the eagles used glenn johns for their first two albums the self-titled and then desperado 
and Glenn Johns fell in love with the Eagles because of those great harmonies. But those harmonies weren't enough to get the Eagles high on the charts, so when the Eagles convened for the On the Border album, they made it clear to Glenn Johns that they wanted a more rock and roll sound. Well, Glenn Johns just laid it on the line and said, Boys, you are not a rock and roll band. The Who is rock and roll. You're not a rock and roll band. Right. So that's when that's when the Eagles divorced Glenn Johns and went and, and teamed up with Glenn Simzik and mm. added Don Felder and the rest is history there. But I see Glenn Johns as kind of that that teacher that drove you as mm. a student. Mm-hmm. And it was only after the fact that you would go back and you would say to that teacher, I really appreciate, you know, the work. And Ron Wood yeah. did that on, you know, when Glenn Johns would work with the Rolling Stones, Ronnie would actually tell Glenn Johns that they became really close. Oh, good. And he said, I used to hate you, you know. Really? <laughs> I can't remember. Is Glenn still alive? Alive and kicking at 76. Goodness. <laughs> there's so many reasons why Glenn Johns should be number one on my list but perhaps the greatest would be he was the only producer to ever be able to rein in Keith Moon Mm, good point you listen to that album who's next and Keith is not all over the place Mm -hmm. and that was due to Glenn Johns the one thing he's most famous for everybody wants to talk about his revolutionary way that he would mic his drums Mm -hmm. now instead of all the drum sound hitting you from the middle of the mix Glenn's technique would incorporate more of a stereo sound where you would hear the drums in the left or the right. Really revolutionary. I believe it's John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin kind of had a problem with that at first because up until that point, every engineer would have a microphone on every part of the kit. Well, Glenn didn't do that. Glenn used a simple three mic technique. Mm, I didn't know that. Um, Listen to the drum sound on that first Led Zeppelin album and it'll blow you away. thing about Glenn Johns, you know, we talked about some producers like Mutt Lang injecting himself into the artist. I don't think right. Glenn, I don't think no, Glenn Johns do ever that. did that. He was really just a master at capturing the artist's vision. And perhaps there's no better example of that than Glenn Johns' work on The Clash's Combat Rock. Here's Glenn Johns talking about this strange marriage. We're going to pick up the story when Glenn gets a call from Muff Winwood. Yeah, Steve's brother. Muff was head of A&R at CBS at the time. So for some reason, known to the good Lord, he he telephoned me and said, look, I've got a bit of a problem here. I'd like you to take a listen to it because I think you could probably remix it. 
I said, who is it? And he said, the Clash. I said, you could be joking. I actually had never paid much attention to them. So he sent me this double aspect. It was a double album. And I listened to it. And I was amazed at, at the content of it. The skill, the innovativeness, the humour in particular. And it was a mess. It was a giant mess. Self-indulgent to an extraordinary extent. But I could see that in there was, mm. there was the, you know, the makings, if you yeah. like. So I thought, well, this would be interesting. So I met them. Well, Joe came down just to meet with me, which I was a bit nervous about, to be honest. But within seconds, they were polite and charming and, and Joe's bright as a button. I mean, mm -hmm. nothing like you'd expect from somebody who's spitting at people. Actually, I, don't, I don't know that Joe ever did, actually, but you know what I mean. Within minutes, I, I, he had me, you know, eating out of his palm. I, he was fantastic, and um, I agreed to do it. And uh, he was fantastic. He, I, I, sort of let, I sort of leapt in and hacked it to pieces and I had loads of ideas about how I thought, thought it could be improved, mm -hmm. all of which he encouraged. He was brilliant to work with, amusing, uh, charming, lovely man and unbelievably talented. I think it's time to wrap this thing up. For Glory Days Radio, this is your host, Paul Underwood. The great John Lamoureux from the Hustle Podcast has been my very special guest tonight. So I hope you've had fun. I always have fun with I you. always feel like I should have prepared more, and that's usually what my guests tell me. <laughs> I think you prepared more than I did. <laughs> I prepared more on your, your you guys. You did, thank goodness. <laughs> than my guys. But uh, at, at any rate, I hope you guys enjoyed our bantering back and forth, yeah. uh, talking about our top rock and roll producers of all time. You know, we opened up the program as we broadcast in your downstairs at your house here in Denver, Colorado. We talked about going to see Brian Adams last mm -hmm. night. So I thought I would close with my favorite Brian Adams song that I didn't hear, sadly, last night at Red Rocks. It's off of an album, I guess it's a bootleg, Brian Adams Live at the Palladium in Los Angeles, recorded in 1985. That's right, right when Brian Adams was at the peak of popularity. I'm going to get to my favorite part of my favorite Brian Adams song to close out Glory Days Radio. Here's Take Me Back. Until next week, this has been Glory Days Radio. Thank you for joining us. With Paul Underwood and John Lamoureux, good day from Denver. Yeah, but I guess I should have seen it coming. I should have seen the signs. I didn't think that she needed me, boys. I guess I was blind She didn't give me a warning, she says You shouldn't treat me wrong 
But when I woke up here this morning in Los Angeles, California, she was gone. Now, for those people here tonight that can't figure out what this song's all about, this is a song about a chick leaving a guy first thing in the morning. And you know I hate that. The only thing I hate worse than that is the snivel, snivel, snivel later. I mean, basically, if you're gonna split, that's it. So I decided to, that I go downstairs in the hotel. What's the name of that hotel we're staying at? The place. Uh, what's the hotel down there? Come on. Whatever. I went downstairs to the calf, decided I'd order a little breakfast. Forget about my problems. And of course, since it was 1.30 in the afternoon, I couldn't order the regular scrambled eggs and bacon. So I had to settle for the hamburger deluxe. Hamburger is not it. Hey! So I get my food. I look at this hamburger. I start eating. I look up. Who should I see all nice and pretty looking at me? She had her blonde California hair pushed back off her face. She had one of those nice, tight, you know, those, those really tight, tight things on. She came up to me with all the dignity that she could muster. You know what she said to me? I'll tell you. Take me back, won't you? Take me back, won't you? Change my ways. Take me back, won't you? Take me back, won't you? I'm not the same. I said. <laughs> 